Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And we have managed to get Al Hardy on the line to talk all about her brand new book, Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World, which is a rollicking read that, um, that sees Al travel to various places across the globe to chart the quite unexpected and, and fast rise of Pentecostalism in a bunch of different places. Al, it's, um, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. And so what led you into this story? It was really a complete accident. I was uh, working on a story in Waco, Texas a few years ago uh, about the John School movement, which is now a, a chapter in the book. Um, and, and basically the people weren't really thrilled for me to be following them around, um, you know, some pretty hardcore Texan small-town evangelicals. And I realised after a while that the reason that they, they let me um, come and, and see their, their school and kind of their what is essentially an anti-sex work movement that they call human, human trafficking, human slavery, um, they were inspired by an Australian woman, Christine Kane, who's a Hillsong alumni and, uh, and, and very popular preacher and Instagram, uh, yeah, kind of Instagram uh, preacher in the US. And, uh, yeah, they were inspired by her and I thought that was pretty interesting and just started reading more and realised it was this huge global story that um, isn't really being told, I suppose, outside of academia. I think a lot of a lot of newsrooms, particularly, you know, which I'm part of that, are you know pretty Western and secular and liberal, and kind of these things just just kind of crept up. So yeah, I thought it was a cool story and excuse to good excuse to go to some pretty cool places. Yeah, and I want to hear more about some of your trips. But I mean, we learn from you in the book that a quarter of the world's two billion Christians are Pentecostal now. That's up from just 6% in 1980. And it's sort of expected that by the middle of the century, one in 10 of us are predicted to be part of the Pentecostal movement. So curious, what what did you find out about this movement and, and what's your understanding of of why it's gathering so many people to it. Sure. Look, it's there's a ton of things, obviously, but but there's a few kind of stories that we're seeing replicated over and over again around the world. Um, firstly, I mean, the the great kind of not so secret of religion: you don't convert non-believers, you convert believers to, to your particular denomination, and sometimes even from other faiths. Um, so, so they're really sweeping up in Catholic, um, very Catholic or some even Anglican areas. Uh, so, so in Latin America, uh, it's sort of in the process uh, of overtaking Catholics in Brazil right now, Pentecostalism. Um, so that's, yeah, that, that's pretty big. Um, and, yeah, just the way that it's really moved since since the 80s is, is pretty crazy how, how, how fast it's grown. And so over and over again, we're, we're seeing a few things. Uh, firstly, it really speaks to people in big cities. A lot of people around the world are moving to, to big cities, um, you know, from, from their small town or whatever for work, and they get there and they feel a real disconnection from community. They feel quite alienated. You know, it's just work, work, work. You know, we're doing everything through technology. And a church is, you know, is a place where you can actually often reconnect to that, um, to, to where you've come from or perhaps your culture. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, Nigerian and Caribbean kids in, in London who are getting really into Pentecostalism and it's sort of a way of, you know, perhaps connecting with grandma who's still back in Lagos or, you know, something like that. So, so it's, it's really powerful in that way. And, and the other thing is uh, Pentecostalism has always really been really, really good at speaking to people's material needs 
and and kind of contextualizing their lives. Um, and so, you know, a Pentecostal sermon is much more like a, a, a self-help kind of thing. You know, it's very inspiring. I, you know, had a, a really great preacher that I met in Mozambique who did this really, really stirring sermon about, um, you know, how everyone's living too much through Instagram and Facebook and, and you know, coveting other people's stuff. And, and it's a riff on the Ten Commandments, but they're putting it into a context that people understand and that is quite meaningful, you know, that he is seeing a lot of people come to them and get worried that their neighbours have more than they do because, you know, they're just living their life on Facebook. But so, so that kind of stuff is, 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 really, um, is really important. And, and probably the, the most important thing is, uh, health and wealth are basically the two main reasons why people go to Pentecostalism. So um, when when you don't have proper state healthcare services or they're being ripped out from underneath you, um, miracles and also just, you know, a lot of big churches in, in places like South Africa and Nigeria might have a little medical clinic attached um, to, their, to their church and, you know, often people aren't getting this at all from the state. And then in terms of wealth, um, prosperity gospel is, is quite a big thing to a lot of Pentecostals. Uh, but there's interestingly some evidence that it works. Um, people tend to buy into a church and a preacher. And when you're putting something on the line, you tend to throw yourself really wholeheartedly into it. It's a system of accountability. Um, and, and it's almost like a, a mentorship uh, that, that people are sort of tend to get themselves into when they get into these churches, which are often... Yeah, the very Pente- Pentecostal preacher is often getting much more involved in your kind of daily life. Um, so those things are, are probably the chief drivers. And, and can you just outline for us briefly how Pentecost- Pentecostalism is is different? What distinguishes it from other forms of other, other denominations of Christianity, particularly those more traditional kinds that, that, as you say, are kind of drawing followers from Catholicism and that sort of thing? For sure. So, so it is a branch. It's considered a branch of evangelical Christianity because you're born again. Um, so, so like any evangelical, you have to, to be born again, you know, as an adult. But, but then you're also born into the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of like born again plus, I suppose you'd say. And, and that's what the big thing about Pentecostalism is. It is the belief in the Holy Spirit. And that's um, one of the reasons why it's so. It speaks to modern times because it's very individual. You know, in the old times you kind of have a, a dialogue with God through prayer. Um, now the Holy Spirit fills you, God is speaking through you. So that's very modern, very individualistic, uh, very powerful, in the wrong hands, very dangerous. <laughs> um, and, the, yeah, the, and the Holy Spirit's also speaking in, you know, particularly in the global south where, where you know, most of the world and, and most of the Pentecostals are, um, it's really speaking often to spiritual conceptions. It's always been fairly flexible and, and, and almost a bit syncretic. So you can, you can, you know, bring some, um, the demonology is quite a big thing. You could, you can bring some traditional sort of folk demons from your culture in Brazil or somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa into that fold. And, and it just fits a lot better with local cultures and beliefs in, in a lot of parts of the world than, than say, um, Catholicism. And can you speak to the, the dangers you allude to there? No? <laughs> sure. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I kind of try to spend half the book. Uh, I'm, I'm not a person of faith myself, but I try to spend half the book really understanding why people believe and, and you know, their stories. And, and it's like anything, you know, there's a full spectrum. There's I've met some of, you know, absolute living saints in the Pentecostal world and I've met some absolute crooks and charlatans, you know. Um, so, so there is that full spectrum. But, but obviously it's fairly, um, as I mentioned, there's that, that real contextualization and, and real modernity to the Pentecostal faith. Um, so, so it is fairly politically charged. And in some parts of the world, 
um, yeah, you know, particularly America, Nigeria, Brazil, it's taken on a very political dimension. Um, so often that, you know, that can be anything from, um, you know, just, just a bit more kind of a muscular biblical faith, you know, being infused into local politics. Um, but it can also be, you know, um, your political enemies are, are, are possessed and demons and that, and that sort of thing. So um, obviously, yeah, for, for all the good it does people, there's, um, there's someone often, yeah, there's, there's often someone there to, to misapply, I suppose, some of the teachings or, or yeah, maybe not, but there, there's certainly um, in, in the wrong hands, it, it can be used for some pretty bad stuff. And we're certainly seeing that in the United States, at least at the moment. Yeah. Well, will you draw links between the, the rise of Pentecostalism and the rise of, of right wing populist figures and, and populist movements um, such as, you know, Jair Bolsonaro in, in Brazil, Donald Trump, Rodrigo Duterte in, in the Philippines, you allude to as well. And, and um, even outline something which I wasn't aware of, of a particular offshoot of the Pentecostal movement, the Seven Mountains. Mandate who were involved in the storming of the US Capitol um, as well. So why is it that, that these two things go together, that it might be that, that the rise of Pentecostalism is conducive to the further spread of these kind of movements? Sure. So, so there is a general sense of um, feeling that sort of besieged by the secular world around them. Um, there is a, a, a lot of the world that sort of looks to places like Australia and and Europe and the US and sees gay gay marriage exploding and sort of says, see, see this is what happens when you you know stray too far from the Bible. You know, people within those countries saying those things as well. So so that's a really big part. Just sort of feeling they really feel like the, the tide's turning. Um, you know, and the whole world sort of turning their back on on God. Um, and, and that has you know, there's real strains of that. I think in the, the populist right wing movements that we're seeing at the moment. You know, sort of mistrust of, of globalism and, you know, all, all sorts of the end of history stuff. I think that, you know, a lot of people said, yeah, we sort of took for granted, I suppose, um, throughout the 90s. Uh, so, so it definitely speaks in that regard. Um, and also just, again, it's speaking to those kind of, it's, yeah, always textbook like hip pocket issues. You know, like I said, you know, the Pentecost has always been saying, yeah, God cares how much money's in your wallet at the end of the week. <laughs> that that sort of stuff um and yeah so, so so they certainly are fortifying i would say it's the theological wing of, of the new populist right i'd say so not everyone is inspired by this stuff you know there's some not particularly religious politicians in america taking on very pentecostal ideas like the seven mountains mandate um for for obvious you know it's not really their thing but they'll use whatever they can and sometimes you know if you're speaking to people this is the only thing they actually really believe in it's it's a very handy handy way to speak to them um and then there also is just that the idea of yeah being born again is that that real demarcation of two different lives and, and people just tend to live very differently and they see their life you know before and after and um and that is yeah just so unbelievably powerful so some people it might just be getting off alcohol giving up gambling something like that but some people it really charges them to go into battle to be a real warrior for God. And, and yeah, there are some, some pretty dangerous politically charged doctrines like Seven Mountains Mandate and spiritual warfare that, that's coming out of the movement that are, um, yeah, powerful and concerning. Yeah, and I, I wonder, I mean, as you research and you did travel for this book, what did you find about uh, Australia in this story of the, the rise of the, or the growth really of the movement of the Pentecostal movement? Yeah, uh, it's interesting because everyone in Australia sort of wants to know about Scott Morrison and Hillsong and it kind of makes me laugh because they're, they're not 
especially uh, Scott Morrison is not represented with Pentecostals. People always think of your kind of, you know, Jerry Falwell's red face in the pulpit screaming about abortion in the 80s and there's nothing further from that in the Pentecostal movement in many ways. You know, it's um, that the, the median Pentecostal in Australia and around the world is a, um, is a young woman uh, from Latin America or, or Africa or, or, or parts of Asia as well. Um, so so it's, it's very different to perception. And also, I mean, Hillsong's so interesting around the world. It's got such a huge following and it's really, they really perfected the music um, and brought it to the world. And, you know, it's like Pentecostalism, it's saying, yeah, you can live a Christian life in a secular world. So you can um, you can listen to music that's, look, it's pretty good. I've listened to a lot of it. Like, it's credible. The production values are great. It sounds like whatever you're kind of listening, you know, it might sound, and it really And it moves. brings in income to 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 the oh, church as well. I mean, it'd be, I mean, look, there's a lot of music makers listening to Triple R and be, I mean, how successful is Hillsong when it comes to being a, a, um, a music label? Oh, it's so huge. I think sort of cumulatively they've, they've got billions of YouTube views for their music. Um, you know, things like Spotify and that would be, you know, probably much more. It is so big. I think they, they say they estimate about 50 million people around the world are listening to Hillsong music each week in their churches. It's, um, you know, it's coming into a lot of non-Pentecostal churches, even some Catholic churches that are using it. It's that, it's that powerful. And, and it certainly is um, part of its story of getting young people in the door. Um, you know, interestingly, yeah, I think a lot more people are, are going to Hillsong churches uh, for, for the music rather than the preaching of Brian Houston. He's not most Hillsong goers preacher. Um, so, yeah, I think that could be interesting longer term in, in once the court case there is over. Uh, the other thing with Hillsong is um, I think part of the reason why it's so popular in the United States in big cities like Los Angeles and, and New York is that it is actually a much lighter theological touch than typical American churches. There are quite similar to Hillsong churches like Bethel in the U.S., they're much more, you know, fire and brimstone and abortion and on the, all that kind of stuff. Um, Carl Lentz, who was the, the very famous Justin Bieber's preacher in New York, um, went on the View television program and refused to condemn abortion, um, you know, being from Hillsong because they're just not, they don't really like to get into the politics. I think coming from Australia, they don't really want to turn people away. Um, so, so yeah, they're, they're very different, I think, to a lot of people's conception um, because they're, Pentecostalism in Australia is still a fairly alien concept. Was this a difficult book to write, Al? Because as I was reading it, I was thinking that, you know, religious denominations and, and, and churches and the like don't often like a, a light being shone on them. I mean, how did you go getting some of these interviews and speaking to people who are who part of the church? Yeah, it's it's definitely not a time to be part of the fake news media, for sure. Um, it, it wasn't easy. It was pretty hard. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't really able to interview any any really big global preachers. They all turned me down. You know, they've all got media empires behind them. There's no way they're, they're talking to someone like me. Um, but then a lot of, you know, every, you know, just, just average, like, parishioners and churchgoers were really cool. You know, they thought it was interesting that someone was taking an interest in their faith and their church. Um, yeah, so so it was... It, yeah, it definitely wasn't easy, but but I mean, in some ways, it's probably also good just to just to experience the the faith like a lot of people do in the world. Six hundred million people do in the world every day. So so in in some ways, it was a blessing, I suppose. Um, but it would have been nice to have had an audience with with more of these um, big preachers with private jets and media empires and all of that. <laughs> well, it's a it's a fascinating book, and um, it, it does sort of take you on a, on a real ride across the globe, looking at the rise of Pentecostalism in different places. I certainly learnt a lot, and um, 
and can recommend it for anyone out there who wants to learn a little bit more about the very sort of quick rise of this movement. It's um, been great having you part of the show this morning. Elle, thanks so much. Thanks for having me and thanks for reading. Absolute pleasure. Elle Hardy, they're talking about all about her book, Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. It is out now via New South Books. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Finding out more now about a mini nature reserve that's been installed in the CBD, uh, the goal is to better understand how a city's vibe can impact and potentially even improve our mood. Uh, known as the Sonic Gathering Space, it's a 6.5 metre circular seating area surrounded by plants and sounds that have been taken from four of Victoria's national parks. You can find it in the old Melbourne jail and one of the people responsible is Jordan Lacey, a research fellow from the School of Design at RMIT University. And Jordan, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. And uh, for those of us who haven't found our way, our way over to the Sonic Gathering Space, um, take us there. What, what's it like? Well, uh, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, so the Sonic Gathering Space is a uh, attempt to bring the ambience of nature into the city. It's uh, building on an area of urban design called biophilic design, which uh, stands for bio being life and philic being love, so a love for life and lifelike things, which has now morphed into the idea of a love for nature and that humans need contact with nature for their well-being. So my own research is trying to take these ideas of biophilic design and attach it to soundscape design. So the Sonic Gathering Space brings these two worlds together. So as you've already described in your your introduction, it's a 6.5 metre uh, diameter uh, seating area that uh, I designed with Charles Anderson, who's a landscape architect at RMIT University. It's got plants from four national parks, Terry Grasslands, the Otways Foreshore, French Island, and uh, the alpines. And it's got plants from each of those national parks, but it's also got uh, three-dimensional soundscape recordings. So as you sit in the middle of this circular park bench, it's like you're, you're, you're immersed in the sounds of those areas as well. Sounds, sounds brilliant, Jordan. <laughs> I can kind of imagine sitting there and, and blissing out um, as we speak about it. How did you go about recording in those national parks and, and weaving them together in a way that would you know, ha- have some kind of an, an interesting effect on, on people who enter the sonic gathering space? Yeah, it's a really good question. Thank you. So I'm drawing on uh, a number of sound art techniques that... Um, I've learned in collaboration with a lot of my uh, colleagues uh, at RMIT University and beyond. And uh, my main technique is an ambisonic microphone. So an ambisonic microphone is like a 360-degree microphone, so it records the entire environment. And the idea is you play that environment back through multiple speakers, so it's like you're sitting inside that environment. Um, Other microphones include contact microphones, which record... Uh, vibrations through solid materials, so I sort of record the sounds of the wind blowing through trees and branches rubbing together. Also hydrophones, which record the sounds underwater, so the sounds of bubbling brooks and so forth. Really, in terms of the choices of those sounds, it's, it's about 
a deep listening in today's national parks and deep listening is an idea I really learned from a number of uh, Indigenous artists and thinkers including Vicky Cousins the idea of really connecting with an environment first and then when you discover an interesting sound using those microphone techniques to uh, record those specific environments and then bringing them back into the city so, so it's not just trying to recreate nature it's trying to find some of the subtleties and the uh and the and the mysteries of nature and bring those in if you like i can't wait to experience this and so when we're we're in the space how does that sound of nature mix with the rest of the sound of the city jordan well that's a great question because uh this is not a sound art installation it's a soundscape design so some of my sound art colleagues will come in and they'll say, oh, the sounds could be a bit more pleasant, Jordan, because <laughs> they're, <used to>, uh, <laughs> they're used to hearing something in a gallery or a CD where it's really um, present. But the idea of a soundscape design is that the sounds that you introduce should meld into the surrounding sounds so that there's a subtle effect on the body. Um, I'm getting a bit of feedback here, so <laughs> I might be stumbling on my words, but there's, uh, so there's a subtle effect on the body, uh, and this is where we're working with soundscape designer and environmental manager Lex Brown from Griffith University. Uh, we have a QR code attached to the installation, which we're really hoping your listeners will go down and have a listen and use the QR code, because what, what we're trying to figure out is do these sounds and the plantings impact mood in a subtle way without it being a big, you know, in-your-face installation, if you like? And we all know how to use QR codes these days, don't we? And I'll just oh, well. I'll remind people who you are. And, Jordan, while I'm doing that, if you flip yourself over to speaker, it might help with the feedback. And we're speaking with okay. Jordan Lacey. He's a research fellow from RMIT's School of Design. And we're talking about the sonic gathering space that he has um, put together. Uh, it's down at the Old Melbourne Jail. And um, uh, his part of it is a sound design installation. He's been collaborating with a landscape as well, a circular seating area, so you can immerse yourself in plants as well as sounds taken from four of Victoria's national parks. And, and Jordan, for when people do uh, take a photo of, of the QR code, what, what are they taken to? What do they then need to do to record their mood and, and, and track, I suppose, the, the effect of the sonic gathering space on them? So the QR code will... Uh take you to... Oh, sorry, I'm going to go off speaker phone. Okay, it's worse. Sorry about that bad tip. <laughs> well, this is a reminder of how audio does affect you, isn't it? <laughs> it makes speaking exactly. very difficult. Exactly. I've got my own little sonic gathering space. Uh, so the QR code will take you directly to a Google Doc um, with just a simple, you know, yes or no. Are you willing to fill out this questionnaire? Then there's about 10 questions with a, a rating from minus seven to seven that relates to mood and the plants and the sounds and the seasoning experience. And then there's a chance to leave a small comment at the end. And what we'll do with all of that data is tr try to ascertain, well, does this sort of installation actually improve and impact on mood or is it just something we... We fantasise about. <laughs> yeah, and once I mean, once we have a bit more information there, and it sounds like um, the installation is going to be there till mid-year, so hopefully you get a lot of feedback. Will it be used to to consider spaces in Melbourne? Because we know the CBD look. It's um, we're talking about you know 
um, biophilic and, and, you know, it's lost a lot of philic, a lot of love over the past couple of years. And I know there's a lot of um, people putting their heads together to try and think how to bring be- people back in or make it an environment that people feel safe and, and like they, they want to hang out in. Will the information you gather likely feed into some of those strategies? Well, well, hopefully. I mean, myself and Lex Brown and Charles Anderson, broadly speaking, are connected with an international field called Soundscape Design, which has its own relationship to biophilic design. And that's looking at cities around the world and saying, how can we analyse the soundscape and how can we use interventions to improve the soundscape? So the data we collect will sort of feed back into that conversation. Um, But... In terms of the lockdowns over the last two years, what's really interesting is this sort of research is thinking about densely packed cities, mega cities, where there isn't a lot of access to nature or parks. So how can we take advantage of small areas where we could fit these sort of installations so people living in those environments can get access to restorative experience? But now, of course, with the lockdown, what we actually have is the installation in quiet, empty areas uh, with cities in need of more people and revitalisation. So it actually <laughs> opens up a whole new way of thinking. Maybe these sort of interventions thought of in various ways could make the city a place of intrigue or exploration that encourages people to come in. So we started to think about it like that. Yeah, and I was thinking about recent sound design installations in the CBD, such as the the River Sing project as part of Rising Festival and, you know, also the audio experience along Birarong Mar as well, which does, you know, have a, have a really interesting effect on you when you encounter it and, and particularly when you don't expect to. Is there sort of a real emphasis on using sound in an interesting way in cities to allow people to, to I suppose, connect with nature and, and have a bit of respite even from the hustle and bustle of, of some of these, you know, mega cities, as you say, that are very sort of high density living arrangements. Mm. So those two works, uh, the first one, I think, Byron Scallon, and the second one, Sonia Lieber and David Chesworth, and they're all um, sound artists based here in Melbourne. We're quite spoiled for sound artists here mm. in Melbourne. And, um, and what that uh, demonstrates is that festivals and public art are the main ways that we get access to sounds in the city. So that, that's, that's probably the main way. It's almost like the, the most interesting approach to soundscape design going on because we have sound artists actually creating sound installations. Um, sorry, I just lost my train of thought there. It's the echo, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling your pain. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I know that the, the sound was your aspect of, of this project of Sonic Gathering Space, but thinking about the plant aspect and the landscaping that goes there. I know, I mean, I'm aware and people might have seen pictures of, of Singapore has, has turned itself from just quite a, um, a, a city that doesn't have much plants, you know, massive big um, plantings, rooftops, um, you know, buildings dripping with plants and that sort of thing. Um, is that, are there examples around the world of, of similar projects to yours, which is me- melding the two, the, the sound with the, with the plants? Not, not really. I don't think so as yet. Um, I think that's sort of bringing together soundscape design and, and biophilic design. I don't, I don't know of other examples. That doesn't mean there isn't. Of course, though, with biophilic design, um, 
projects when you're planting, you're encouraging birds and insects and also human activity. So you're getting those sort of natural sounds anyway. Uh, but in terms of these, the um, kind of audio approach to introducing sounds and combining that with plants, I think that's, that's pretty new. And it really does lend itself to the way we can create these uh, micro-environments which I think is potentially quite exciting. Well, well done, Jordan. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot, of, a lot of people listening that would love to experience what, what you've um, helped build. And um, we'll give some more details after we say goodbye to you. And um, thanks for bearing with us with the echo. We're not, we don't hear the echo. It's just you. So apologise for that. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> uh, no thanks. problem. Thanks very much. Thanks, heaps. Uh, Jordan Lacey there, Research Fellow from RMIT School of Design, speaking about the Sonic Gathering Space. And you can go and check it out down at, in the forecourt of the old Melbourne Jail and you'll be able to sit in the centre of a circle of plants taken from four of Victoria's national parks and sounds from those national parks all around you as well. It sounds really intriguing. Triple. Ah. And because Omicron is much more infectious, we are being urged to wear well-fitted KN95 masks as a first choice, especially when we're in higher-risk settings. I know a lot of school kids are wearing them. I've seen them. And um, this, I know, doesn't sit comfortably for a lot of people, especially those of us who have spent the past couple of years wearing reusable fabric masks and trying to cut back on waste and recycle them through. And um, so now what do we do? And Alicia McCallion from the Monash Sustainable Development Institute has read the room and she's been considering how we can minimise waste without compromising health. Um, She's a co-founder of the Circular Economy Textiles Program over at Monash, which is uh, investigating what it would take to transition the Australian textile, clothing and footwear industry to a circular, circular economy model and um, Alicia it's great to have you with us good morning good morning great to be here feels like you're the person we need to speak to because it is jarring um, for a lot of people to opt for disposable masks after diligently washing fabric masks for years but uh, a lot of us have made the shift Um, what is recommended when it comes to um, you know reusing disposable masks is this something that we can actually do yeah, that's a great question and one that we wanted to investigate a little bit, um, understanding that it feels like there's been a change in the recommendations, but actually, as you pointed out, um, the, K, the KN95 or the N95 has been the best option all the way along, um, but now we um, are in a setting where we have to really, we have to choose them and we have to kind of level up to make sure we have the best protection for ourselves, for our children, for our family members, especially if we've got immunocompromised folks um, within our family household setting. It's really important. And of course, um, we want to make sure we have the best protection for our community and those that are working on the front line. And so now, because Omicron is more infectious, it's come to be sort of re-recommended that actually we need to really choose the best protective gear. And that means that um, unfortunately, uh, the fabric masks that we all have been diligently um, carrying and washing and, um, and purchasing are not the best fit for um, most of the high-risk settings where Omicron is present in the community, which means we kind of have to level level up with that sense of making the right choice for the right setting um, and also thinking about supply chain. Um, not everybody can get their hands on um, these particular um, disposable masks 
And when you do, you might not have one per day, which is sort of the recommendations, certainly in the hospital setting. So trying to figure out how to best make that supply stretch and thinking environmentally while also protecting your health, it really does prevent kind of a tricky problem. But there's a few ways that, um, that it's been found out that you can just stretch them a little bit longer in a safe manner and um, ensure that you have the right protective gear, but that you're able to make the supply last. Um, there's a couple of dis- discussions about this, um, but generally it's about rotating them. And so if you wear a one N95 mask for one day or for about four or five hours while you're out in that higher risk setting, then you can actually carefully um, doff it and put it in a, a brown paper bag and mark it as um, the number of the day. And then basically rotate them. Um, and so this, this is fine if you can get your hands on seven and you have to use one per day per week. Um, but if you, if you need to sort of make a few um, stretch a little bit farther, there's about three to four days that you can rotate them. Um, and the best recommendation is about seven days. So it is a bit tricky and hard to navigate, but it's um, a simple way that you can start to stretch the supply that you might have been able to get a hold of for your household. Yeah, and, and one thing that, that's caused, you know, me and a lot of people dismay, I'm sure, is seeing just how many particularly disposable masks you see around the place on footpaths discarded in, in gutters and that sort of thing. I mean, how big of an issue is this from where you sit in, in terms of the amount of waste and litter we've seen associated with the pandemic, I suppose, where mask wearing became part of our everyday, which for most of us it hadn't been before? Yeah, it is, it is a tricky thing because it's hard to understand and, and, and sort of guesstimate how much waste is, is actually going into um, not just our landfills, but also into our community, into our, our council um, garbage collection, and, and also, as you mentioned, you know, um, fluttering away in the wind by accident. Um, I think it is, it is hard to um, estimate um, unless we take a look at what we're procuring. And so a lot of the work around um, waste estimates is, really starts with, well, how much are we procuring and bringing into the country or producing in the country and, and selling on the shelves? That helps us understand um, the volume that we're dealing with, both from a single-use plastics um, setting or in a fabric setting in a, in a textile. Um, and so one of the reasons we need to take a look at this is because it, it crosses a number of different sort of I guess, areas of interest or disciplines. So I guess I should back up and sort of mention that at Monash Sustainable Development Institute, we, we're, we're always working. Our purpose is to advance the well-being of people and planet. And so when we think about these tricky problems, um, often we need to bring together transdisciplinary experts. So if we think about in the, in the instance of our article that we wrote, you know, Kim is a co-author and her work looks at exploring the role of media in turning the social tide on the plastic avoidance, which is really important because we want to avoid a first step. And then my co-author Forbes, his research is um, overlapping and, and, and focuses on the overlap and interplay between environmental, financial, and social sustainability in healthcare. So, of course, Forbes is able to share with us, you know, what kind of procurement practices are happening in hospital settings, how much waste is actually going into the supply um, and being used in that setting, and then what does that look like for how much waste is actually coming out of that setting and going into landfill or incineration. And that really does cross over well with my interest, which is clothing and textiles waste, and how how do we transition to a more circular mode of production and consumption? So the three of us coming together to explore this particular setting, you know, all of these different mask options, how can we limit our waste, um, and what can we actually do as the individual and as the household to have an impact so that we see less masks going into those green spaces and into landfill if we can practice sort of the best option at the moment to really limit the amount of waste that we're generating individually, household, and then sort of in our community as well. 
And do you find, I mean, you know, communicating to people what the, the best or the least worst option that they could be choosing at any given moment in the pandemic's always, you know, has been really difficult. The information and the advice changes all the time. When it comes to reducing waste, is there some good rules of thumb, Alicia, that that people should use like we just spoke about that one there that if you if you can you you can safely reuse masks if you need to by cycling them and resting them and you can extend them you know not just wear them one day but maybe three or five days even or as long as seven times but are there other recommendations that people could take on yeah, absolutely. And I think what's interesting about some of the work that Kim does with her um, Behaviour Works colleagues is they recently published um, some research that looked at sort of the behaviour around when we think someone else is also avoiding single-use plastics. Um, the biggest motivator for us is knowing that others are avoiding them too. So if we want to start to avoid um, taking those uh, single-use plastics into our household, it's really helpful to know that others <laughs> are also doing this. And so, you know, you can switch to resealable cleaning products and cut down on those single-use pla- um, packages that comes with each of the individual cleaning products. Um, When you're ordering your groceries online, choose paper versus the plastic bags. So just avoid that single-use plastic from the get-go. Often the paper bags are 70% um, post-consumer recycled material anyway, and they're really good for composting or weed suppression if you have a garden. And then also just thinking about other areas in your household. If you're shopping online, thinking about going secondhand um, or peer-to-peer platforms to find pre-loved items. Just, again, trying to avoid that perfectly new item and seeing if you can extend the life of something that's already in existence. And we have so many great platforms, peer-to-peer and also secondhand retailers that have lots available and are really ramping up their delivery options um, and also usually package in in compostable uh, sort of mail bags, which is great. Um, and I guess the more you start to practice that avoidance, so what else within your household can you repair before you buy something new? <clears throat> that's, a, that's a really important part of lowering your impact overall because we know that new products produced, especially in fashion and textiles, new products being produced is about 38 to 45% of their impact. So if you just choose a secondhand one, you're already cutting down your impact on single use and you're really extending the life. Um, and so knowing that others are doing this is a really important um, way to encourage yourself to just start a few new practices so that you can really um, have an impact in your own household. And what's encouraging is people want to do this. So even though we're in a setting of a pandemic and it seems like hmm, maybe, we, maybe we're going backwards here with all of this mask waste and these single-use plastics for all the packaging that we're consuming because of trying to protect our health, we actually have a huge desire to continue to stay on the sort of momentum of keeping our impact lower and and being more conscious about the environment. In Plastic Free July, we saw a really big increase from 250 million participants in 2019 to 326 million participants in 2020. So there is a real desire to do this. And one of the most rewarding ways is starting with your own household because we know that we've got single-use plastics, if we can avoid them coming in, or we can reduce them, or we can reuse, then we have an impact right in our own household. Speaking with Alicia McCallion with the Monash Sustainable Development Institute, all about a, well, kind of riffing on an article that she's co-authored in the conversation called, Have You Stopped Using Reusable Fabric Masks? Here's How to Cut Down Waste Without Compromising Your Health, which has a bunch of of helpful tips along those lines. And and just to sort of follow up um, the, the issue of textiles, as you mentioned, it accounts for quite a significant portion of waste around the world. And that might be, you know, because people are throwing away perfect 
perfectly good items that, that could go elsewhere or maybe aren't aware of, of what to do with those items. How is it best to, to repurpose textiles, whether that's sort of clothing or, you know, old bed sheets and that sort of thing? What's the best thing to do with them, generally speaking? Yeah, it's a really great question, and there's lots of different options. Um, it does start with trying to avoid and purchasing new, and so always looking to use what we already have, um, and then reducing. So do you need eight different black long sleeve T-shirts? Um, you know, probably not. Dylan? Um, no. Just thinking about how many you might have. Um, reusing, reusing is really important. You know, just thinking about um, can we just stretch it a little bit longer before we actually have to um, send it off to the next party and and we know that our charitable recyclers um you know our secondhand shops and and, and um, op shops are really doing a great job of redistributing a lot of goods from households but we also want to make sure that when we're doing those donations when we have decided that we're done with something and we need to pass it on we do that in a way that's meant um as a gift so if you wouldn't give it to a friend then it doesn't doesn't need need to be dropped off at your local op shop because mm-hmm. they actually are then um sort of burdened with trying to manage what to do with it. So the best thing to do is to take care of your items and to repair them where best you can. It's not that hard to pick up a needle and thread and mend something. We do it for lots of things, and I think it's important to think about the options for doing it for your clothing or your textiles or those bed sheets. Um, things can be repaired and mended quite easily. Um, but then when we're ready to pass them on, packaging them up for the, uh, for the donations with op shops, or trying to sell them on those peer-to-peer platforms. It's amazing what other people will um, find that they need for, and that you might be done with. You know, I think about that perfect doona that you've used for a long time. Sometimes that can go to animal rescue for bedding, and sometimes it um, it does end up in the recycling um route and ends up being, you know, made into rags, which is sort of the thing that we always think of. But that's kind of our last option. We really want to um, start with so many other steps before we determine that something that we've recently purchased and used is now waste, when actually it's a really important material that we should cherish and use as long as possible. Alicia, thank you so much. You've um, solved quite a few questions in my mind today and um, yeah, all the best with your work. Thanks very much for the time. Lovely to chat with you today. Likewise. Alicia McCallion, um, Monash Sustainable Development Institute. You can find her article, the article she co-authored on the conversation. Uh, have you stopped you re, uh, using reusable fabric masks? Here how, here's how to cut down waste without compromising your health. And it has a whole bunch of tips in there around masks, but um, as we just did then too, uh, extends into other parts of our lives as well. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.